Hi everyone, first off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are producing this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal, Numbri, and the Darug Nation, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I'm Jared, your familiar stranger for today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia-Pacific and College of Arts and Social Sciences, the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Nicholas Ng, Dr. Nicholas Ng is a composer, performer and research fellow at the Institute for Australian and Chinese Arts and Culture at Western Sydney University. He is also a passionate teacher interested in the development of young musicians. On the Urhu, Nicholas has toured around Australia, Canada, Europe, the United States and New Zealand to various festival events and has written for prestigious ensembles such as the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra and the Australian Voices. His work as an artist has been documented in the ABC Compass program, Divine Rhythms, SBS Mandarin, and The Music Show. Nicholas co-established the Australian National University's Classical Chinese Music Ensemble in 2003. He currently teaches Erhu, Theory and Composition at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music and helps run the conservatorium's very first Chinese music ensemble. Before we dive into today's interview, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on The Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insights on today's interview. So here it is, my interview with Nicholas Ng. Thanks for joining us on the show, Nick. So I think we can start with a little bit of introduction about yourself and how you ended up wearing so many hats. Thank you, Jared, for inviting me to the show. My name's Nick and I have been a musician most of my life. I was born in Singapore and moved to Australia at a very young age, maybe about three or four. So a lot of my musical education, I guess, was done in Australia and a lot of my normal education too was done here. So I spent a lot of my teenage years searching for, I guess, some sort of a um, cultural identity. Of course, I grew up in the multicultural era in Australian governments. So, of course, there was a lot of encouragement to pursue my cultural background, especially when I had a breakdown as a teenager studying music. I was a pianist from a very young age and um, decided that I would quit but my, luckily, my high school teacher persuaded me to attend a concert in Sydney Town Hall and it was an Arhu concerto. Most likely it was the Butterfly Lovers. I actually can't remember now what I heard, but I was so moved by the performance that I started taking lessons from Miss Chen, Chen Xiaoping, and she um, was my very first Arhu teacher. And I knew nothing about Chinese music then, but I was encouraged to compose and to learn this instrument and that got me back into music and so since then I've been 
I guess I had a bit of a one-track mind because I just knew that I would become a musician. I just wanted to become a musician and I just wanted to be the world's best Ohu player. Of course, I don't think I ever um, will accomplish that goal, but along the way I did a PhD in composition and ethnomusicology, which most of you would know is, you know, comes from anthropology actually, uh, which is probably why I'm here. And that was done at the ANU. So it's very nice to be talking to you as an ANU person. And it seemed like, although my major was in composition and ethno, I, I seemed to be getting a lot of gigs on Aoku and more than piano, even though I'm a much better piano player. And so I just decided to carve a kind of career in that sort of niche area. You know, people just think of me as the Chinese music guy. And it's quite interesting how work just keeps coming from that sort of area, from word of mouth or... I might apply for something, but I guess I've given myself a bit of a label. But of course, then I'm employed by the uni to do research. And again, it's in Chinese music and my focus is Chinese diasporas, especially in Australia. So I started off my undergraduate, no, sorry, my postgraduate um, research was in Chinese music in Sydney. Oh, actually, I started off in third year. It was my introduction to ethnomusicology. So my very first fieldwork I guess, experience was as a third year, looking at Chinese music in churches and temples in suburban Sydney. Yeah. And so from there, I turned that into a PhD topic. And I, uh, yeah, so that's my work so far. So before we dive any further, I was wondering if you could explain to us what exactly is ethnomusicology. When I first came across the term, I understood it as the study of non-Western music. It soon became apparent that a lot of ethnomusicological history involved white researchers going into tribal societies like anthropologists, learning the language and culture, doing a reflective study and analyzing the music in empirical and interpretive ways. In China, interestingly, ethnomusicology now refers to the study of the so-called ethnic minorities, predominantly conducted by Han Chinese researchers. There are, of course, minority-identifying people who study their own culture and music. So I suppose in Australia, I would be one such minority person studying my own minority music in an ethnomusicological way. So I guess that's what ethnomusicology currently means to me. Perhaps you would have heard about a decade ago, there was talk of dropping the ethno-prefix because the study of all of the world's music should be just musicology. But in my current world, this is still quite hard to fathom. Ethnomusicology still seems to require a kind of comparison against what it is not. For instance, ethnomusicology is not musicology, which many understand to be the study of, say, Beethoven and Bach, you know, text-based analysis and interpretive history. This is certainly still how we teach it at undergraduate level. So in a kind of long-winded way, ethnomusicology for me, and in many of my circles, is still very ethnographic, sometimes autoethnographic, and relies heavily on qualitative and cultural analysis. So what made you move from composition to ethnomusicology? So right now, I've got a foot in both camps, and I think it's because I want to prove my, my professor wrong, because when I was in second or third year, we had these things called composers' workshops, and, and the professor said, Nicholas, you'll have to make your mind up. You can't be a composer and an ethnomusicologist. And deep inside, I wanted to say, you're wrong. <laughs> but she's not the sort of person you want to challenge in public or in private for that matter. But anyway, I thought, I, I'm just going to keep composing anyway. 
I know why she said it because to become a real ethnomusicologist, a very dedicated one, you, you know, there's a lot of work involved. And to be a composer, there's a lot of work involved. And it's very hard to do two things professionally. I'm trying to anyway, you know, and it means that I can't always be in the field and it means I can't always be composing. But realistically, I'm not super famous and I don't get commissions every day. So, you know, if I did, then yes, I'll probably have to give up my, my research work. Yeah, at this stage, there's no chance of me giving up my research work. <laughs> so, it's <that's> good. <laughs> yeah, so one of your recent publications was on Teochew Opera in Western Sydney. I was wondering how you came to this topic and what made you interested. Are you Teochew yourself? Yes, I am partially Teochew on my grandmother's side, Yeah, who is actually Teochew from Indonesia. And yeah, but that kind of history was a little bit, how shall I say it, not discussed much in the family. I don't know if you know of the indentured labourer system in Southeast Asia in the 20th century, but she was one such person who was brought into debt. And I didn't know that until I went to uni and studied modern Asian history. <laughs> I heard from my family that she used to be a slave, but I thought, you know, what does that mean? You know, and so I realised what she was, and but she never talked about it. But she, she was a success story. She became very famous and as a beautician, you know, like, yeah, and brought sort of new technology to her area. So I knew something about my Teochew heritage, but the reason I decided to focus on this group was because I was doing my PhD and somehow I just, through just the community, because there's a bit of overlap, if you say, oh, I'm just going to research, you know, temple music, but then you'll find that people who go to the temple do other things weekend or if they go to church you know on Sunday but during the week they go and play chess or mahjong somewhere else and there's music involved and so one such I guess community lead led me to the Teochew Association in Cabramatta which many people might know is quite notorious as you know it's the former drug capital of Sydney <laughs> and you know and also like you know gang central lots of Asian gangs and it's been, I guess it's been tidied up a lot in the past decade or so. So it's not a major crime spot anymore. Not the one it used to be anyway. So I, there was a bit of trepidation involved because I'd never been there before, but I decided to go with my parents <laughs> and um, because they were interested in checking Kavramara out too. <laughs> and I found the Teochew Huayquan, you know, in the community centre. Yeah, and it just started from there and I just made contacts that were very useful and my Teochew is not very fluent, so luckily my mum was there to help me. But, and many of them in the community are from Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos. And some of them have Mandarin because there's this sort of, you know, the word overseas Chinese, hua tiao, hua tiao sort of mentality where they try and teach Mandarin in Southeast Asia and in those countries too. So that some of them actually, I could speak to them in Mandarin, but others are a bit harder because only maybe um, Teochew and, you know, um, Vietnamese, but which I don't speak myself. So there was a bit of a language issue at first. Yeah, so that's how I discovered them. And I found that uh, I used to do Chinese lion dancing. So what drew me actually was the fact that they have lion dancing there as well, but it's a different style. And so that got me into then the opera, which they also rehearse weekly. And um, they also have karaoke and all sorts of other things. Of course they did. <laughs> of course they do. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They have karaoke night. I think they have um, cha-cha night, like ballroom dancing. Yeah, it's, so it's quite an interesting subculture because it's not a community that most people know about. 
Often, because there are many Cantonese, and now a lot of mainlanders in from mainland China, and yeah, the Teochew um, sort of identity is a little bit squashed, or you know, I guess you can say marginalized. Yes, yeah, so I was thinking the community is basically a diaspora of a diaspora, since they are a Southeast Asian association, and what is pretty obvious here is that there is a big disconnect from the mainland. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. and that's what makes it so interesting. Yeah, because a lot of them came as refugees, you know, in the seventies or eighties, and and so they have a Vietnamese kind of identity and appearance because their name is Vietnamese, you know. And the founder actually was a kind of a rags to riches story. He was a refugee himself, Mister Lai, and he became quite successful, and therefore was able to fund most of the community stuff. Because they have a beautiful Chinese style sort of building next to a Catholic church that you know they bought some land, and they built the, erected this beautiful Chinese gate and you know car park and everything and they have annual opera performances but usually it's excerpts. Yeah. So if your parents didn't accompany you to the Teochew Association that day, how would you reckon you'd be received by the people there? Yeah, I think I would have found it quite hard. I think because my mum's quite multilingual, she speaks all the dialects, right? So she, <laughs> she's a really just like my parents. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. People of that generation, because my mum and dad were both born and raised in Singapore, so and my, my, you know they're quite. Oh, my dad's Mandarin is. He didn't have much Mandarin. He went to back then when there was just English school system only. Like he went to private English school. He's from a privileged family, so they had that sort of white upbringing. <laughs> and then my mom, my mom, sort of, you know, not very wealthy at all. So she went to a very traditional Chinese language school and ended up learning lots of other dialects in the kampong. She's from a kampong herself when there were villages back then. Yeah, so she was a very useful asset to my to have. <laughs> So being a performer, a composer, an academic, and having a mother that speaks all the Chinese dialects, I wonder how your fieldwork had changed because of these factors. You think you could talk a little bit about that? Oh yes. So obviously, when I found out what time the rehearsal was, thankfully my mum was able to get the day and time. And then even then, it's a bit sketchy because of the, okay, yeah, it's a, it's usually on a Wednesday around eleven. You know, because they're all very casual. Um, most of the people are retired. I mean, they all are. They're all retired men, and so yeah. So we we sort of you know went back at the appointed time, roughly you know that time, and yeah, they were fine. They there was a bit of curiosity because they're probably wondering who's this you know twenty something year old guy because nobody my age is interested in their music. You see, you know they're they're well in retirement most of them. But when they knew I played Arhu, they were you know would you like to try? But it's very hard for you. It will be very hard. They said because. They knew what sort of musician I was because they could tell. Because I brought my ohu with me, <laughs> I brought it with me, and they said this is not Shanghai music, so don't get any, you know, expectations that you can learn it from a score. But they said you're welcome to listen. Like they're very friendly, you know. They're they're friendly and also very old and sort of, you know, they're aging and is ah、oh, so and so is not here. He's not well, and the numbers are dropping. You know, I mean they're already dropping back in when I first met them, two thousand and four. They're very, very accommodating, and they showed me the various fiddles, and that's what opened my eyes, you know, to the diversity of Chinese music. Because for me, you probably can imagine, I, I only just received lessons in a kind of very, I guess, conservatory style, you know, playing. 
because my, my teacher was a lecturer at Beijing Arts University before she migrated to Australia. And she went through the con system too in China, the conservatorium style, sort of, you know, equal temperament, you know, that sort of very polished, you know, stagecraft. You have to, there's a lot of acting when you play. And then to see, I was thinking, is this authentic Chinese music? Because what I was learning was very concert hall, you know, European sort of inspired. But, you know, the men were sort of just sitting there. They, they hardly tuned their instruments and they're just, you know, poker face, you know, just playing the music with very bad technique from what I could see because that's, as I said, they're doing everything wrong, you know. <laughs> you know, yeah, this not bending their wrists and they only play in one hand position. And I, was thinking, I was thinking, wow. And, but because I was a researcher, I knew, well, this is the way it is, right? And then you can't put your own bias. And, and then the more and more I heard it, the more I came to appreciate the, the sound world because... It was totally different to what I, you know, I was learning who studies, you know, and scales and things. <laughs> I could not see a connection, apart from the fact they were bowing, you know, apart from the, the content of the music was so foreign. So being in the Chinese orchestra is basically being in a conservatory as well. Yeah, well, if you study your instrument classically with a, you know, a teacher who may have played in an orchestra once, yeah, it, I guess it's the guoyue, you know, the national music that was developed in early 20th century China and what has become of it. It's that sort of model of music. You know, they had the Society for the Improvement of National Music, that movement in the 20s. And I mean, I had to look at this in hindsight, you know, but it was basically a revolution in a way, away from the music I was researching. So in hindsight, I could see... Ah, so this is what has happened to the music. So what is now called the Chinese orchestra is actually this very polished version of what they were hoping music would become in China, I should say, yes. And they were moving away from, you know, the folk sort of sound where you only had heterophony, you know, and everyone just played the tune that they knew in their own way and nothing was scored. Yeah, so there were no arrangements, you know, people play for, I don't know how they do it, but I guess it's the same with many world cultures. Everything's memorised, mostly. Um, there are scores, but, you know, it's usually for the vocalists who are learning it, and, you know, mostly they don't, they don't use scores. So I was wondering, for the three major dialects, the Hokkien, Cantonese, and Teochew opera, Yes. Are there any similarities and differences? And do they have their own individual repertoires or do they share the same repertoire? Ah, so that's something I'd like to do because I, I don't have much background in Cantonese opera. I have met quite a few people and they, they are lined up as, you know, informants for my research now. So I'm, I'm looking at various, there are about 30 opera groups in Sydney or something, so many Cantonese groups here. They're everywhere. I think it can be another thesis, you know, you can do a whole PhD on Kenny's Opera in contemporary Sydney. It's such a big, big field. There are certain modes that the Southern language groups have in common. I can hear a similarity in mode. And the plots, there are just some famous plots that exist in all the operas. And, and also because, you know, the Teochew region in, in China, in mainland China, is within Guangdong province. So I think there's a bit of cross-fertilization between Cantonese opera and Teochew. So, yeah. And I actually know nothing about Hokkien opera <laughs> to research too. But in Sydney, um, there are not many Hokkien speakers. 
I'm Hokkien myself. There is a Hokkien Society, the very mainland China though. It's a mainland Chinese organization as far as I know. But again, something I'd love to tap into. So I think for the next two years of my fellowship, I would like to expand my research area to include other dialect groups. That would be very interesting. Oh, maybe you could come to Singapore. I would love that. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's a lot more Hokkien and Cantonese operas and lesser Teochew operas, at least in Singapore. Yes, I believe there are less. Yes, you're right. Yes, I mean from what I've heard too, there's more. I'm Hokkien myself, and apparently my auntie told me this just just a few years ago that my great grandfather on my mother's side played the southern fiddle. He played a Hokkien opera fiddle. Not the Aohu, you know, obviously, but a type of fiddle um, for the opera. And then all his brothers, all seven of them, also played Hokkien opera. They all made their own instruments. And they were all killed in the Japanese occupation. So that's why there's no continuity. But I wish I, I'd met them. Of course, it was not possible. So that was quite interesting because I was always wondering why I was so drawn to the sound of the fiddle. And that now I know maybe it's my DNA because <laughs> my, my ancestor played it. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm just curious about how you combine your Chinese and Western art music background to inform your compositions and the way you approach music in general? My undergraduate degree was all about, you know, Western art music, learning how to score, you know, how to orchestrate. And at the same time, at Sydney Uni, the focus was on Asia. So there was a big sort of Asian focus. So I felt like I really went to the right music department. Yeah, and head of the department for quite a long time was Peter Sculthorpe, who was, he's probably Australia's number one composer, and he, he was very much into Asia, and then his students also, you know, big names in music, art music, and so they were all for encouraging me to pursue, you know, Chinese models or aesthetics. So, yeah, I spent a lot of my undergraduate years looking for ways to combine the two, and I hesitate to use the word East meets West. Like everybody's using that now it just gives me the the chills because <laughs> but that's essentially what i was doing i guess looking at east meets west well because australia is in the south of china technically <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right. yeah that's right exactly yeah so even now i can't imagine i can't understand why but it must be because people don't hear it often enough or they haven't yet, but, you know, there'll be a touring orchestra from China and they'll say, East meets West concert. And they'll go, <laughs> I wish they'd call it something else. I might actually go. And then when I went on to do a doctorate, I just then decided, okay, I'll just keep... My folio actually was informed by my ethnographic work. So then I was doing a bit of a Bela Bartok, you know, Bartok, who went in Eastern European music. So it wasn't an original sort of idea, but it was a good model, you know, for a, a composition slash ethnomusicology type thesis, which they don't do in America much. In America, it's very traditional. You either do ethnomusicology or you do composition. But I was glad to have the freedom to try and combine the two. It was an experiment, you know, and... It was fine, you know, I didn't have to do any major rewrites. I got all three boxes ticked and my approach was using material from the fieldwork. It may be, say, a piece of vocal music or some sort of textual element that I would try and emulate in whatever piece I was writing. And I think you mentioned Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, so I had a commission to write this piece. So I used various, you know, textures in the Western orchestration. So 
non-Western ideas in a Western sort of context, that sort of thing. Yeah, and so it's not something that hasn't been done before, not entirely original. So it goes all the way back to Henry Cowell, who's an American composer. He grew up in San Francisco. You know, he heard all sorts of music, especially from China, and he used that sort of syncretism, that sort of syncretism in his music. So for me, I sort of tried to develop it a bit more in an Australian way, whatever that means. <laughs> but it was sort of suited to the way I grew up. And of course, they say with composition, it's your personality in the music. So just developing my own way to write syncretic music by using different textual elements or stories or anything, extra musical ideas. So I was wondering if you could share with us as well, now that you're in education, how does your experiences in the field translate to the way you teach? I think a lot of the time, if I say we're supervising a student, say doing a master's or whatever, PhD in composition, I just basically share what I experienced in the field or with my various, you know, commissions in the past and anything that will help them. And they're all very individual, you know, cases, as you probably know. Every postgraduate student's different, and I think that's the best I can do for them. And also to give them a lot of reading from different areas, because I often say to them that composition isn't just about writing music. There's a lot more to it. And one thing, and this is something I learned from my own professor, that the professor who said I couldn't do both ethnomusicology and composition, she said there's always something that will inspire you for life. It may change, but there's something that inspires the composer always. And that's something that I always try and get them to, to discover for themselves what it is. I guess that's what university is all about, isn't it? To learn these things that you can't experience, you know, if you're working some other job or... I mean, you never know. So something that will keep them going, I think. And for me too, because I find that with a creative art form like composition, there is no textbook. I mean, there are textbooks, but there really isn't a textbook, if you know what I mean. Like with my own PhD supervisor, he made it very clear that he was not going to read a single word of my thesis. <laughs> and um, he looked at my music. <laughs> so he, he was, you know, very, very good. He, he's a true anthropologist, you know, really. But the, the composer who was helping me just, I think most of our composition lessons were about his time growing up in China or, you know, as a pianist or, you know, whatever. And he looked at my music as well, of course. But those conversations we had, even though not all of them were musically related, were inspiring. So I think that was really helpful. Sometimes I wondered why we had a lesson about that topic, which had nothing to do with anything. But I think all of it mattered. <laughs> yeah, and it all comes full circle in the end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what kind of students do you teach? Ah, I'm actually a research fellow, so most of the time I'm doing research, but I am required to give the odd lecture here and there. And obviously I supervise postgraduates, yeah. And the postgraduate students could be from any discipline. I think I had one student, she'd only just learnt music, which was really unusual. She wasn't quite a music student, but she was a music student because she had committed to studying music in a very, very short amount of time. <laughs> it was slightly challenging, but she was more, you know, cultural analysis and musicology, you know, analyzing, but she couldn't read a score, which made it quite challenging. There's all sorts of different cases there. But in my spare time, <laughs> I teach instruments at the conservatorium. Usually it's a weekend sort of job, you know, and I may have every semester, I may have anything from two to seven students learning arahu. 
And then it's that conservatory style way of training, learning to play classical music. And I teach also in my spare time some theory, so Western harmony and theory. So all up it's sort of like an extra eight hours or so a week of teaching practical music and theory and then the rest of my time I'm researching and you know composing so I've been quite busy <laughs> it's very hard yeah. <laughs> yeah so you know it's pandemic season now I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit about how the move to online teaching has been especially for you know performance or do you still have face-to-face sessions no, so we can't. And first time we locked down last year, the university quickly decided that we have to be on Zoom. And then we eventually moved to one-on-one. Towards the end, when things got better, we, we were able to record as an ensemble. But there were limitations. So in the Chinese orchestra, we have about 30, 40 players. But with the first lockdown, we could only meet as small ensembles. So we did, you know, eight per group. We divided the orchestra up. into. So we played small ensemble music. And so we did Cantonese, you know, and we did some music from the north of China, you know. So we did it by theme or style. So that's how we did it the first time. Now we're in lockdown again and the whole semester is online, it seems. So... I'm thankful that this semester I only have two Aarhu students. I usually have like seven to nine, but now I only have two on Aarhu. To me, it's like a great relief because teaching online is not ideal. You know, it's two-dimensional. I mean, often you have to physically manipulate the fingers and touch them, so I can't do that. (laughs) And also, say, if someone breaks a string and they're a newbie, like they've never changed a string before. That was a bit of a nightmare last year. So one of my students broke a string, so I had to um, pair my phone up to Zoom and and use it as a kind of camera. And then I had to focus in on where you need to turn or where you need to push the string in. And he got it done in the end. Like, it took us the whole lesson just to change one string. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there are YouTube tutorials he could look at. There are, there are YouTube tutorials, absolutely, yeah. I think he was sort of panicking, so it was nice to have someone, like a real person there, sort of guiding you. (laughs) (laughs) So before we end the podcast, let's listen to one of your compositions, Hope. Fantastic. Yeah, so I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit about how you came about writing the song and what was the inspiration behind it. Oh, yes. So I didn't get to explain to you when we spoke about it earlier. So it actually is a piece of music for contemporary dance. And I chose it because I like it, but also because I wrote it when I was living in Canberra. So I thought it might be appropriate because I was a, a student at ANU, but I got this job to write some music for the uh, Choreographic Centre. It used to be called the Australian Choreographic Centre and it's for young dancers and every year they have a production and it's contemporary dance. So they asked me to write a piece of music for them and this was the piece of music called Hope. It was in association with the art galleries, with the National Art Gallery and 
the um, exhibition at the time was the word eternity which is the eternity icon that was a, an artwork that was quite popular in sydney for a while so was there a reason why you chose these instruments i chose these instruments because at the time i was still studying music from around the world and by that stage i'd been playing in the gamelan for about mm, eight years or so and so I started at Sydney Uni and then at, at ANU we, we had a gamelan teacher too, Babak Sugito and also Amri Widodo. And we had gamelan as a subject at the ANU School of Music. And so the sound of the gamelan was very much in my mind. And so I thought I would do it in a special way where I would combine my own interests, other music from around the world, plus a kind of combination slender pelog scale <laughs> in an unusual time signature and add Chinese instruments, and yeah, it was a mismatch. It was sort of my mind at the time when I was 23 or something, you know. <laughs> because also there was a sort of a story attached to the, the dance sequence, and it was about a girl who was living in hope of something, and there were lots of other people who were living in hope of something, and the dance, the choreography itself was based around the emotion or feeling of hope, and there was a sort of innocence to it. I was briefed about what it was. Like when you're writing for dance, there's this sort of chicken and the egg sort of thing. Like, does the music come first or the choreography? So in this case, it was very set. They already knew what they wanted. And they just wanted me to deliver something that they could dance to. <laughs> so before we started recording, I told you that this song sounded like a waltz. So is it actually a waltz? <laughs> oh, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I must try and find the video. This was sadly in the day when they would produce things on VHS. So <laughs> the whole production was filmed and put on a videotape and not digitized. Yeah, this is 2004. So yeah, Australia is quite backward. No, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> so I do have the tape somewhere, but I wish I could show it to you. But it's, it wasn't a waltz, like in a real sort of traditional waltz, but it, it was contemporary. So the, you know, the, it started off actually with, uh, I believe, no, I can't quite remember now. There were bodies on the floor rolling around and they were making ballet-type movements, but not quite ballet. You know, what contemporary dance is like. Not quite a waltz, but, but it was a very good observation. I was intrigued to hear you say that because it does have that kind of feeling, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, thank you, Nick. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Before I let you go, I was wondering if you have any upcoming events that you'd like our listeners to know about. Oh yes, thank you. I would like to mention that we have a seminar coming up. It's part of our, I guess, monthly history seminar on Chinese history in Australia. So we go all the way back to the 19th century to the present day. And currently the topic is Chinese opera. And my director seems to be, Professor Ding Han is very much interested in opera in Australia, Chinese opera. And so um, that's on the 27th of August, which perhaps is not going to be... Um, um, included in this podcast. <laughs> uh, everything's on Zoom, so there will be a recording. But then following that, our next big event, I guess, is the symposium called Music and Spirituality, which is on the 13th and 14th of September. It's a Monday and Tuesday. And it involves practitioners of spirituality and music or theorists, people from all different disciplines, including anthropology, musicology and um, there are composers, historians looking at the subject of music and spirituality in their own research. So um, so that's a two-day affair. The first day is, you know, people from various universities and who are active, research active, and the second day 
primarily focuses on alumni of the university and HDR students from ANU, Sydney Conservatorium, of course Western Sydney University and you know other universities around. So it's a Zoom thing as well. So we hope you can attend. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you. So that was it, me and Dr. Nicholas Ng. Today's episode was produced by myself, Jared, with help from the other familiar strangers, Alex Delois, Simon Theobald, Claire Pital, Timothy Johnson, Carolyn West, Sean Liu, Matthew Fung, Joe Clifford, and Ronan Chen. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes or dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us make the show better. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thefamiliarstrange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus a blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. A recent post on the blog is Jatilandan's Experiencing the Spirits. Check it out at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Peter DeBril, special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Malt Rowe. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. Until next time, keep talking strange.